Greetings, uh, Crestwick family, here and abroad, wherever you may be. When I, when I saw the order of service and saw that the song right before I was to preach was the Ancient of Days, yeah, you understand what I, what I thought about. Uh, reminds me of the, the, for a couple of years I wrote a back page column for uh, what was then the Evangelical Baptist magazine. And so at the, uh, and the tagline at the end, it would say, I was a professor at Heritage Seminary and an elder at Grandview Church in Kitchener. But they also produced the French version of it, which indicated that I was an ancien and uh, French for elder. And that all sounds so really bad, but I'm, what can I say? Getting old is bad until you consider the alternative, I guess. But that's not all bad either, is it? So in, anyway, we trust in God uh, however long he gives us this life to serve him. As it happens, next week, the, the first Sunday into the new kind of lockdown, will we'll bring us to the next paragraph in First Peter, which talks about the church in relation to the governing authorities. In, in the providence of God, that, that's probably a very suitable timing. But you'll have to wait till next week. For that one. One of the most fascinating books I've read in the last few years is, I think, one of the most significant Christian books of, uh, of these times. And that's Rod Dreher's book called The Benedict Option. Now, Rod gives it the title because he's, he's looking back to uh, Benedict, St. Benedict, who, um, in order to, to really reform and renew the church, um, formed an order within the Catholic Church. The Benedictine Order exists to this day, and, and formed a monastery, which then became a series of monasteries. And, and the, the point of the book is in the subtitle, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. Because Benedict uh, did his work in creating that monastery and that order uh, at a time when uh, the Roman Empire had crumbled and things did not look good in, in the empire or in the church, really. Now, Rod's book is focused very much on the USA, but this is North America, and same basic things are happening on both sides of the border. In fact, I, I mean, I think the evidence would indicate that we in Canada are steps, several steps ahead of the USA in terms of moving in a post-Christian direction. For example, we legalized same-sex marriage a full 10 years ahead of the USA. We're really progressive, so to speak. The, the, the point of, of his book is not to say we ought to all move into monasteries and seclude ourselves from the world. His, the point of it is to say we, we need to think about strengthening 
the church, strengthening local communities of believers, teaching believers what it means to live as serious disciples of Christ in our time and place, creating uh, alternative communities to the wider world around us. In other words, accepting the fact of exile, one of the themes of 1 Peter. Accepting the fact that in this age, however much the gospel may impact our, our given society, we are never fully at home, this side of the return of Christ our King. And, and so we need to take seriously what it is to be a, a community and to recognize that God's purpose in this age is not simply to bring salvation to individuals, but, but to create a community of redeemed individuals in the world, the church, to, to provide a, a glimpse of what God's kingly rule is like. And, and to give a, a glimpse of the beauty of God's kingly rule reshaping human life in the direction of what human life ought to be. So it's not about withdrawal as much as it is about, about being disciplined in our holiness. And in, in fact, in, in, in Dreyer's book, he talks about about the fact that church discipline is one of the things we need to recover. We don't have to become a monastery, a religious order, but we do need to think in terms of being a community that lives by a a discipline different from that of the world around us. And, And I suspect it's true that some of you here today probably, many of us, um, in the evangelical Christian world are, are sort of living with a memory of Christendom, a memory of a Christian Canada. We, we remember the time when there wasn't just the national anthem, there was the Lord's Prayer that everybody said at the beginning of the school day and that sort of thing. We, we remember a time when even even when people didn't affirm the gospel uh, at all or not in the way we understand it, still there was a pretty large shared understanding about standards of life. That's long gone. Uh, Newsflash, in case you weren't aware of that, just wanted to let you know. So we need to think seriously about what it means to be not just holy individuals, but a holy community. And so that takes us to the next part of 1 Peter today, 1 Peter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 12. I'm going to read it, so let me read that whole text. 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by human beings, but chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So the basic point, Peter says, you need to understand about your identity as the church is that the church is a a distinct society. It's a holy nation within and above the nations of the world. Do any of you remember when the phrase distinct society was making its way um, around Canada? It's back back in the days of... of, um, Quebec separatism being a, a really up, out front idea, and lots of talk about the possibility of Quebec separatism. I still remember at the very point when we were looking at the possibility of immigrating to Canada back in the, um, in the mid to late 1970s, I, I learned, as, as, as actually as we were planning to make our way to Canada, Canada might be falling apart. And the, uh, the, the Parti Québécois um, had obtained power in Quebec and we're constantly talking about it. And of course, I will always remember the date of the first, of the first Quebec referendum on separation, May 20, 1980, because that, on that very day, our youngest son, Paul, was born. He voted to separate. On, on May 20, 1980. So I'll always remember it. So the phrase distinct society was floating around, and, and that was a way of describing Quebec. Now, it obviously is a distinct society within Canada in so many ways. Napoleonic code background rather than British common law, the language of French as the dominant language, etc. We understand that. And yet, we had to wrestle with what that might imply. Well, the church is the real distinct society. A nation within the wider nation. So in one sense, it's a subgroup. But in another sense, the church, universal, the community of believers in Christ, the body of Christ in the world, is transnational. And so we we transcend, we stand above the nations. But we are distinct. Now, All that comes through 
in the way Peter describes the church here, when he, when he uses various images. So the, so the first one is that we are like a house being built. So in verses 4 and 5, Christ himself is the living stone rejected by human beings, chosen by God. And we are like living stones also being built up into a spiritual house. The imagery here is God's temple is now the church, God's people. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, it it begins back in Matthew 16 when Jesus uses the language of building. I will build my ecclesia, my church. It, It shows up again in 1 Corinthians 3 when Paul can say, you, plural, the church, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the sanctuary. In Ephesians 2, the imagery of the building again. We're being, the, we're being built up, the house is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And even when we get to Revelation 21 and the vision of the new Jerusalem, the holy city in the age to come, it, it's described as having foundation stones, 12 foundation stones, the apostles. Jesus, in, in some of the metaphors about the church as building, is described as the cornerstone who gives shape to the whole building. So, in many ways then, when, when we come into this room, it's not that we are entering the sanctuary, it is rather that the sanctuary is entering the room. Probably shouldn't say this, but That's why I would suggest neither auditorium nor sanctuary is actually the best way to describe a room like this. Auditorium describes a room that we go to 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 observe and listen, but we come in here to participate. Sanctuary says this room is the place where the Spirit of God dwells, when in fact it's we the people who are the dwelling place of the Spirit. So that's why, that's why at our church actually we call it the worship center because it describes what we come here to do. But if you call it sanctuary, I won't, I won't break fellowship with you, okay? I'll, I'll assure you of that. Um, but the temple has now ceased to be a building made of literal stones in Jerusalem. The temple is the, the people. And then, and then he describes us uh, in verse 5 as a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. The idea of the people of God as, as priests goes all the way back to Exodus 19. When when God has taken the people of Israel, the old covenant people, out of Egypt, and he says to them, I've, I've called you to be a kingdom and priests. Priests are, are connectors, as it were, between God and human beings, representing the people to God in, in offering praise and sacrifice. 
on their behalf, but also speaking for God to the people. And so we, we are, all of us, a priesthood. We offer spiritual sacrifices rather than offering uh, bulls and goats and lambs on literal altars. Paul says in Romans 12, we're called to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, our bodies as, in a paradoxical way, living sacrifices. In the way we live out our embodied life devoted to the service of God. In Hebrews 13, you have the idea of of offering sacrifices of praise and and there even giving away my money to meet the needs of others is described as a sacrifice, as a, a means of God's grace and mercy reaching out to others. So we're a priesthood, separate group. Now, when we get farther down, we, to, to verse 9, we, we will find that we, as God's chosen people, chosen, marked out as special in this world, are, are not just a, a holy priesthood, but we are a royal priesthood. We are, and in fact, that goes back to Exodus 19 as well. Now, the idea of royal priesthood could either mean we're, we're a priesthood in service of royalty, which is true. We're in service of God, who is the king of the earth. But it can also mean priests who are also kings, priests who also reign. I think that may be what's going on here. I'm, I'm thinking of the vision John has in Revelation chapter 5. We have this, this vision of heaven, you have, you have God the Father seated on the throne, and you have Christ, the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who's also the Lamb, who, who is there, and he takes the scroll from the right hand of God the Father and, and, and is about to break the seals. And, and the, the throng of heaven expresses worship to him, and says you're, you're worthy to take that scroll and break the seals because you were slain, you gave your life to redeem people from every tribe and language and people group and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests, and they will reign upon the earth. So we're not just set apart as a priesthood in the, in the world, we're also royalty. I, I'm probably not the only person here who watched uh, the funeral service yesterday for Prince Philip. As I was watching that, I, I was actually remembering back four years ago when I stood in St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle and, and preached a sermon in a service led by the Archbishop of Canterbury. I wish I could see your faces. I, just kidding. Um, I, I wasn't doing that. I was there as part of a tour group. And, and we were in Windsor Castle. And, and on the way to Windsor Castle, right down the road, we, we saw the plains of Runnymede, where the Magna Carta was signed in 1215. And 
I, who was once pastor of Runnymede Baptist Church in Toronto, thought, wow, I finally got to see the real Runnymede. But I was there, St. George's Chapel. But I was thinking, I mean, there you have royalty, special class, and that's the way God views the church. Priests, royal priesthood, who will reign. We're called here a holy nation, a nation within the wider nation because we have our own king, our own ruler. We have our own commands, our laws from him. We, we thus have our own ethos, our own ethics. We really are the holy nation. We are the people of God who have experienced God's mercy in a way that the unbelieving world around us has not yet. One of the implications of the fact that we really are called to be a holy community, a distinct community, is that we are called to practice church discipline, to hold one another accountable, to obey the Lord, to live as his disciples, what we profess to be. And sometimes, in extreme cases, even called to remove those who profess faith from membership in the community. And the wider world around us has a hard time understanding that. Uh, Many of you uh, know uh, what happened just within the last couple of years Calvary Baptist Church in Oshawa removed a person, from mem- a woman, from membership because she was admittedly living in a lesbian relationship, would not repent. And the news media got hold of it, and it became a big issue, and, and they, had, uh, they had the police standing guard outside the church on Sunday mornings for a while. And, and the woman said, it's like they're, they're, I mean, they're judging me. And I thought, and that's precisely what first, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, the church is called to do about wayward members who are unrepentant. When I think about the idea of the church as a holy nation, a really distinct community, a distinct society, It raises all kinds of questions about about what that might imply about the way we live it out. Let me just drop one on you. I, I think one of the things it forces us to think about is is the possibility of of being of seriously committing ourselves to developing a network of Christian schools. Recognizing that education is not value neutral and recognizing that in, in, a, in a province as diverse as Ontario, one monolithic public school system really doesn't properly serve everyone. And we recognize that actually in practice because that's why we have a, the separate school system, the Roman Catholic school system. Historically, that's the whole point. 
They were a a distinct community from the prevailing Protestant ethos. Now, I, I have all kinds of radical suggestions about what would be required politically to make that work, but I'll I'll spare you those nuggets of wisdom. We can talk about it some other time. But it's something we're thinking about. Now, Peter also makes clear that we must understand the nature of this distinction. The dividing line between the holy nation and others is Christ himself. The issue is, What do you make of Jesus Christ? What is your attitude toward him? So, from verse 6 down through verse 8, he he develops it by, by pointing back to several scriptures in the Old Testament about the idea of God laying a stone in Zion, and, and the stone will be a source of strength and support and foundation for those who believe, but for those who disbelieve, it becomes a a rock that they stumble over and fall to their ruin. Now, if you go back to Isaiah 8, verse 14, you you find a reference to the stone where the, the Lord basically says the stone will be himself, the Lord God. But then in Isaiah 28, 16, the text that Peter refers to here too, The stone is laid by the Lord God. So you get this idea that the stone is both God himself and a stone laid by God, which points to the possibility that we may be talking about a God-man. And indeed, back in that same prophet, chapter 9, when you have the anticipation of the Messiah... He is a son born to the people of Israel, but one of his names is Almighty God. So he he is the God-man. And he quotes, uh, Peter quotes from Psalm 118.22, a verse in the text that that we read earlier today. The psalm is, is, is anonymous. There's, David's name isn't in the title. It sure has a Davidic feel to it, though. And, and in the essence of the psalm, the, the writer is speaking of a time when, when he was rejected by the people around him, and yet ultimately he was vindicated by God. So the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. And so this, like other psalms, I take it as messianic. It's pointing ahead, anticipating beyond the the Israel king of that day will be the ultimate one who is rejected by the people but vindicated by God and exalted and becomes the cornerstone. And so as Peter says, this stone, the Messiah, for believers, indeed he is precious. We understand his value. We understand that he is our strength, our foundation. He's our rock in whom we trust. But for those who disbelieve, he says, in verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the message. 
They stumble over him. They, they just can't bring themselves to believe in him. So the crucial thing is we need to understand that the dividing line is, are you committed to Jesus, Messiah, Savior? Do you acknowledge Jesus as Lord? That's the issue, the dividing line between the holy nation and the wider nation. It's not just about calling people to make some ethical choices that are different or anything like that. Some of you uh, probably know the name Rosaria Butterfield. Um, Wonderful woman um, who's written some wonderful books. And, And her first one was, let's see, the Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I think that's the the title. I think I got the words right. Reflections of, I don't know, it's an unlikely convert. You can Google that. Rosaria was a a professor of English and uh, gender studies at Syracuse University. She was a radical feminist, practicing lesbian, out there as a radical leader. So, into her life, after reading some of what she wrote, came a a local pastor and wife. The pastor got in touch with her and said, I'm really interested in what you're saying. Can we get together and talk? And thus began an ongoing dialogue that he and his wife had with her. So they talked, invited her to their home for meals, and, and ultimately, she became a believer in Christ, and, and she's actually now a pastor's wife. But, but she makes the point at various places in what she has written that this pastor wisely was, number one, patient and willing to dialogue and actually willing to meet her where she was and talk, but also also made clear that the the issue wasn't, okay, if you'll just become heterosexual, then everything is okay. That That wasn't the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue, dealing with the really basic human needs that we all have, was faith in Jesus Christ, commitment to him. And then if Jesus is acknowledged as Lord, then the would-be disciple must ask, so how does he call me to live? And then the other things fall into place. But the dividing line is not, what's your sexual orientation? The, the dividing line is attitude toward Jesus as Lord. And that's a crucial thing to remember. So as we, but as we think about being a holy nation, a distinct society in the wider society, we always need to think carefully about the way we work that out in the real world. So Peter concludes here in verses 11 and 12 by reminding us that we have to make sure that we're distinct in the right way, namely, known for good deeds among the nations. So he first says, we're foreigners and exiles here. We're not fully at home here. And in this world, we are going to be stimulated in various ways to obey sinful desires that war against our soul. And so be on guard. 
and do whatever you have to do to avoid giving in to temptations created by, by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Be willing to be different. We talked about that a bit last week. So we need to be genuinely, morally distinct. We need to avoid the pollution that, that is there. Well, some of, it's, some of it, unfortunately, is still inside us, but a lot of it is stimulated from the outside. And so that, that takes us back to the text I referred to last week, Jesus' words in Matthew 5. To his disciples, you're called to be the salt of the earth. And Jesus' point is, the salt is only useful if it is salty. If it gets encrusted with pollution and loses its salty edge, it's no value. It's no use. Salt is only useful if it's different from its environment. And so Peter reminds us of that again. But then he says... What you need to be sure of is that you are living such good lives among the pagans, among the the people out there, that even though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may say you're a hateful bigot. You're you're a bad person, frankly. In, In the early church, there were lots of very false charges brought against the church trying to make the point that they were cannibals, for example, or they were destroying families when one spouse became a believer and, and the other didn't. Uh, they, were, they were threats to the well-being of the empire because they acknowledged another king, on and on. And we hear similar things today. So Peter emphasizes, make sure that you live a life characterized by good deeds. And when you read that phrase in its multiple uses in the New Testament, it seems to mean doing things that meet the needs of other human beings, loving your neighbor as yourself, in other words. Even if they don't understand what you believe about God, if they see you actually loving your neighbor in tangible ways, then it's going to make it more difficult for them to go on attacking you. In fact, he says, if, if you live as a, that kind of beautiful counterculture in the world, they may see those good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Probably, the day of God's visitation probably looks ahead to the day of final judgment. And Peter's probably assuming that they will only glorify God because of your good deeds in the day of final judgment, if they recognize that in advance of that day, which is to say God may use the life of the holy nation, a beautiful life loving God and loving others, in a way that attracts other people to God and to Christ and the gospel and may serve as a means of their conversion. That goes back again to those words of Jesus. You're not only the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. And at that point, Jesus says, you're the light of the world like a city set on a hill, a city, a community that the world can see. And he says, so what what do people do with a, a light, which would have been a candle, typically? 
No one, he says, puts a, you know, puts something over it to cover it. They uncover it so that it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Peter heard those words from Jesus. Peter echoes those words now. What that means is, we are called in following Jesus to live in this world a life that includes some tension. To be different and distinct from the wider world, but not distant. He says, you must live that life among the pagans. He's not saying build a monastery and live entirely on your own and disconnect from them. Live that distinct life among the pagans, which means a bit of tension, doesn't it? Now, it would be much easier to say, let's build a commune and, and build high walls around it and live entirely on our own. So we're not affected by that wider world around us. Or it would be easier to say, let's just blend into the woodwork and be like the world around us so we don't create tensions. Either of those would be easier, but Jesus hasn't called us to do the easy thing. He's called us to follow him. As the Father sent me, so I send you. To live the life of the kingdom as a holy nation in the midst of the wider nation, to live in the tension. But living that way in the world is a challenge, isn't it? All of us who who want to seriously follow Christ have learned that in one way or another. It's very hard to do that as a lone individual, standing out as being that distinct. Maybe you've learned that by experience. But God never intended it to be done that way. You see, we need to know that we're not alone in this world in our commitment to Jesus as Lord. We need a genuine community to help shape us and hold us accountable and stimulate us to go forward in our life of discipleship. Kids growing up in our homes need to understand that theirs isn't the only family that's weird. Right? It helps a whole lot. If, if they don't get the impression that theirs is the only family that lives by those standards that are different from the wider world. And, and in fact, you know, that's the very point of that well-known text, Hebrews 10.25, about not, not abandoning our gathering together, as some are doing. It says, not abandoning, but encouraging one another. And all of that is in support of the exhortations that go before that, to draw near to God, to persevere in our faith, and to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. I'll be talking about that text a bit next week, so... That's all for today on Hebrews 10.25. But all of that is a reminder that as the holy nation, we really are 
all in this together. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we stand in awe of your grace and mercy that would uh, bring us to Jesus, our Lord, for forgiveness and the gift of your Spirit, for acceptance as your children. Your mercy is beyond our full comprehension, but we recognize it and we affirm it and we give thanks. And so we pray that that you will make us, by your grace, a sign of your greatness and your goodness in this world, that indeed others may see and may believe and be saved. So enable us, we pray, by your word and spirit, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.